All right. Good morning, everybody. Open up to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I felt like as Alejandro was praying there, he was like reading from my notes. If you're with us this past Wednesday night, what happened when in the passage that we studied this past Wednesday night? Jesus was arrested. And that should really strike you. It should strike you as a very shocking scene, really, because who typically gets arrested? Criminals, right? Criminals. Is Jesus Christ a criminal? No. He is the perfect, holy Son of God. He is God in the flesh, the rightful Lord of our lives. He's the creator of all things. And this perfect, holy God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is arrested by sinful, corrupt men. It's a stark contrast, and the significance should not get lost on you. But at the same time, I hope what you took away from Wednesday night is that Jesus Christ was not some helpless victim. He was not some helpless victim. None of this happened or is happening by accident. Um, It's not something that is just out of God's control. God's not ever sitting in heaven just trying to figure out a plan B and what's going on. In fact, the arrest, the condemnation, the crucifixion of Jesus, everything we're studying right here is part of of God's eternal plan of redemption. Just think about John 3.16, a very, very famous verse, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Think about what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Was Jesus taken from God? Was God forced to give up his child? No, this was God, his actions. God gave his only begotten son. God was the actor. God is the force here. God is the one in control. And just so you know that there wasn't just some panic plan B on God's part when Adam and Eve fell into sin, you can go back and look at Genesis chapter 3.15. Immediately when sin enters into the picture, God tells Satan that there will be a seed. And if you get into the technicalities of the Hebrew language there, it is a singular masculine. So like Eve had a few sons. That's not who God was talking about. He was, God told Satan that the seed, a special seed that would come from the line of Eve would crush Satan, would bruise Satan's head. And so all, all the way back to Genesis and through the Old Testament, God is telling us, look, I have a plan of redemption. Sin has entered the picture, but God wasn't caught off guard. God is always in control. And all of the Old Testament points to this Messiah, this Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our substitutionary atonement. This was all part of God's plan from eternity past. And as we're in Matthew chapter 26, we're simply seeing this eternal plan that God has had come to fruition. Now put yourself in the shoes of the apostles and the disciples 
If you're in their shoes, does it maybe seem like things are getting a little bit out of control? I bet it did. In fact, we can look and read and see how they all reacted. Things probably felt like Jesus is getting arrested and everything is just going way out of control. And the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities, you think they're probably fooling themselves a little bit that maybe they're in control now? They have Jesus in custody. He's literally in their physical possession, right? You think they're fooling themselves that maybe they're the ones in control at this point? Probably. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows the Father is in control. And just as Jesus has throughout his entire earthly life, even in this moment of extreme trial, Jesus continues to entrust himself to the Father he knows is in control. To the Father he knows this is his eternal plan of redemption. And it's a great reminder to us in any circumstance in life. Like, do sinful bad things happen? Absolutely. But is God wise enough, loving enough, powerful enough to use even sinful things, which he's not the source of, God is never the cause of sin, but even sinful things, is he wise and powerful enough and loving enough to use them even for our good and his purposes? Absolutely. Jesus and his death on the cross is the greatest example. Everything that is happening to Jesus here is extraordinarily sinful. Absolutely. But God is using these sinful things for his plan of redemption, for his glory, and for our good. And there's countless examples of it through the Bible. This is just the one, the biggest one, and the one that we're looking at right now. It did seem out of control for the apostles. You even remember they tried to get control, right? Like Peter says, hey, let's get this thing back under control. Back in what we looked at Wednesday night, uh, verses 51 to 54 of chapter 26. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? Jesus is reminding his apostles and all of us this is within the Father's control. It's part of his plan. And then he also reminds those who are arresting him that hey, you are not in control. This is my father's plan. In verse 56, he says, all this has taken place to fulfill the scripture of the prophets. But all the disciples leave him and flee. So now they have Jesus. What are they going to do with him? They got to do something with him. And it's been clear for a long time now, if you've been with us in Matthew, the Jewish authorities, what do they want to do with Jesus? Kill him. They want Jesus dead. Not enough to just banish him to a different part of the world or the country. Not enough to lock him away in jail. They want Jesus dead. But they have a problem. 
There's a problem in their circumstances and their desire to have Jesus dead. Who, whose control is the nation of Israel under at this point? Rome. Rome is currently occupying Israel. They are under the Roman authorities, and the Roman government reserved the right to put somebody to death for themselves. They were the only ones who could legally carry out capital punishment. And so the Jewish authorities, they got to be careful. They want Jesus dead, but if they just go and do what they want to do on their own, now they're going to be in trouble with the Roman government. So what they have to do is convince the Roman authorities that Jesus is worthy of death. And they have to convince the Roman authorities to carry out capital punishment and fulfill their desires to see Jesus put to death. And so that is what they're going to do. They're going to try to come up with charges that they can take in front of the Roman authorities so that they can finally have Jesus eliminated. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Chapter 26, verses 57 to 68, the trial of Jesus. But what comes out from this trial, the biggest thing that comes out, and the thing that should really strike all of us, that we take away, the thing that we really have to decide what we're going to do with, is this fact. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is the central truth. So read with me chapter 26 verses 57 to 68, the trial of Jesus. It says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? We'll look at four different scenes here. The first just really lays it out for us. Scene, or part one, the trial scene. The trial scene. It says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. 
These men, this gathering that we find ourselves in in verse 57, members of what we would call or what we know as the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish high court during this time. They're the ones who had uh, the highest level of authority in the nation of Israel. Israel. When it came to religious matters, they were the authority. Civil matters, criminal matters, this group of men, they were the authorities. And so it's no surprise that after Jesus is arrested, this is his first stop. This is the first stop. They would be the ones that are looking to formalize the charges against Jesus so that they can go approach Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, hey, this is what he's guilty of. This is why he should be put to death. This group would be composed of elders, but it would be led by the high priest, and the high priest in this case is Caiaphas. We also see in verse 57 that the scribes are present. So the scribes, they'd be like the lawyers, the experts in law, They would be the ones who were there to um, oversee and help point out as experts in the law where Jesus was guilty. And this wasn't a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. Normally there would be formal procedures that would have to be followed. There's a formal courtroom that they would meet in. Um, And none of that formality is seen here in this trial. For, For one thing, they don't meet at the high priest's house. It's Instead, it's sort of like the, the um, Caiaphas' house, the high priest's house, kind of became a situation room of sorts. Like that's where they got together they, that night because they knew that um, the soldiers were going out to arrest Jesus. And so they know tonight's the night. They're, they're at Caiaphas' house. Their arresting party has gone out and they're waiting to hear the outcome. They're waiting to receive Jesus because they don't want to waste any time at all and having charges brought against Jesus so that they can have him put to death. Matthew in verse 58, he also teases us with something we'll talk about more in the next lesson. Verse 58, but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now, we're not going to unravel everything that happens with Peter here. It's a pretty familiar story, but it's one that we'll focus on um, in the next lesson. But Matthew here just gives a little bit of a teaser. And I'm not a Greek expert, but if you get in the, the people who are, they say, if you look at the language that's used, that Matthew uses here about Peter following Jesus to the trial, the language really gives you the picture that it was a hesitant kind of thing. Like Peter was really falling back. He, he, he was curious. I mean, he did love Jesus and he had followed Jesus and he wanted to see the outcome of what was going to take place with Jesus, but he was very tentative. He didn't want to, at this moment in time, be associated with Jesus. And so he follows at a, at a distance to keep a good, healthy distance, to not associate himself too closely with Jesus, who is, he knows, very likely facing his death. But we'll unravel that more in the next study this coming Wednesday night. But that does bring us, so that you've got this, this uh, group who's looking to put Jesus on trial and formalize these charges 
what are they going to charge Jesus with? They need witnesses. They need people to come forth that can give them the ammo they need to have Jesus formally prosecuted before the Roman government. And so that brings us to the need in verses 57 and 58 for, I'm sorry, in the following verses for the false witnesses. While Jesus had always caused quite a stir, they didn't have anything specific at this point that they could charge him with. And so that's part two, verses 59, the beginning of verse 60, the false witnesses. It says, Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So you got to know Jewish law here, and one of the key components to bring these formal charges was that, based on Jewish law, they needed to have at least two witnesses who could corroborate these charges against Jesus. This is based on Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. It's on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. So that's what they're looking for here. And make note of what Matthew says at the end of verse 59. Why are they wanting these witnesses and these charges? Again, we've already kind of said this, but I think it's really important to highlight it. Verse 59, the very end, why do they want this, these charges against Jesus? What's it say? To put him to death. So do you get the picture here that really the verdict has already been determined? This isn't an honest inquiry. This isn't an honest trial where they're going in to really learn about Jesus and get to the bottom of what's happened. No, their minds are made up. They have the end in mind already. They want Jesus dead. They're just trying to go through the motions, the formalities, to make that a reality. But they have a problem. What's the problem that they run into in verse 60? Is, does verse 60 tell us there's any shortage of false witnesses? How many false witnesses does verse 60 tell us at the beginning came forward? Many. many. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are willing to come forward and make these false accusations against Jesus. The problem isn't that they're having trouble finding people. The problem is none of them agree. They can't get two people that can agree on anything that Jesus has done wrong, so they can't fulfill Deuteronomy 19.15. They don't have anything to work with here in trying um, to formalize these charges against Jesus. This is like when you need a really good idea. You need a really good idea, and so you go to your friends, and all your friends keep coming to you with ideas, and they're bad ideas. And like friend after friend, you're like, no, it's not helpful. It's not helpful, and you're wondering, where am I getting my friends? I need better friends, right? That's where these guys are at. There's no shortage of people coming forward, but none of them are helpful. None of them are giving them what they need. 
And I think this is really a testimony to the holiness of Christ. Is it not? Think about how much Christ has done in his 30-some-odd years on this planet, the amount of people he has taught and interacted with, all the places that he's been and all the things he's done, and they can't find people who can come forward and give any legitimate charge of anything that Jesus has ever done wrong. It's really a testimony to the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived. Think about you. If we wanted to be really mean this morning and stand one of you up here and be like, all right, somebody tell us something that this person's done wrong. How long would it take? For me, my family could get up and probably talk about something this morning. And I'm not even aware. Right? I mean, like, the reality is we all make so many mistakes every single day that if we are ever on trial and somebody wanted to say, hey, here's something Brandon has done wrong, it would take about 30 seconds, right? But Jesus, his life, so perfect, so holy, so blameless, that with even this amount of people, these, this level of authority teamed up against him, there's nothing that they can find to accuse him of. But then verse 60 tells us that two witnesses do come forward with charges. And these charges are not entirely true. They are, you know how people take things that you say and twist them, mis misrepresent them. Maybe they take pieces here and there and, and slap them together. And that's really what happens here. These two witnesses come forward and they bring charges that are not entirely true. They have a shade of what Jesus has said, but not the reality of what Jesus said. But this is when, this is, this is the step that leads to the Sanhedrin getting the confession they need from Christ to go to the Roman authorities. So that brings us to part three here, the confession. Picking up in the second part of verse 60, they had all these false witnesses. None of them agreed. But later on, two came forward and said, This man, Jesus, stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here you finally get your two witnesses in verse 61. This man, Jesus, stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, you remember, as we've gone through Matthew, Jesus has had a lot of temple interaction, right? And he has said a few things about the temple. But is this entirely accurate as to what Jesus ever said? No, it's not. Like I said, Jesus did have much to say about how he was greater than the temple, 
how the temple was really always simply a representation of what Christ would be fulfilling, Jesus did on numerous occasions demonstrate his authority over the temple. Look at just an example, John. John chapter 2, verses 14 to 21. Jesus, John 2, 14 to 21, Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to Jesus, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus absolutely presents himself as an authority over the temple. Absolutely. Here's the question, though. Did he have a rightful place of authority over the temple? As God in the flesh? You bet he did. Everything that happened in the temple represented the presence of God in the nation of Israel's worship of God and their relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is greater than the temple. The temple is everything that happened was to point to Jesus. Jesus is absolutely greater than the temple. Um, but did he, and he did say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But again, in verse 21 of John chapter 2, Jesus is making the point about himself being greater than the temple. And that it was his body, once destroyed through the crucifixion, in three days his body would be resurrected by the Father. He's giving a foreshadowing of the resurrection. And did he say, as these, back to Matthew 26, as these accusers are now saying, did Jesus say he was going to be the one to destroy the temple? No. He's simply making a point to destroy the temple um, and it, it would be rebuilt, talking about his body. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Uh, Matthew 12, 6, Jesus does make another statement in Matthew 12, 6 about his superiority over the temple and its system and all that it represents. In Matthew 12, 6, um, Jesus is talking about everything he sees going on in the temple and the worship being done. And in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. Again, talking about himself. And then you'll remember probably about six weeks or so ago, Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2. If you flip back just a few pages, Jesus was coming out of the temple with his disciples. And they, were, they came up to Jesus and pointed out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, 
Not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So Jesus, yes, he did say much about his authority over the temple, his superiority to the temple. He did talk about the impending destruction of the temple, that the old system was one that was fading away. And it is in 70 AD, like 40 years later after this trial, that the temple is destroyed. And so you could see how all these things that Jesus has said throughout his ministry, you could see how they're taking those things and twisting them in verse 26, or I'm sorry, back in Matthew 26, to make this false testimony seem credible. But what they're saying is not true. It is not true. But from the point of the Sanhedrin, do you think they really care about the accuracy of these false witnesses? No, because again, remember what they're going for here. They're not striving for truth. They're not striving for the reality of who Jesus is and what he said. They've already made up their mind. They want him dead. And so these two false witnesses, as inaccurate as they may be, it gives them what they need to go for, uh, forward with charges. And speaking against the temple would be kind of borderline blasphemy. Like not blasphemy is speaking against God, degrading God. Speaking about the temple was very, very close to that. Perhaps not as bad as speaking about God directly, but it was absolutely sacrilegious um, from their point of view and uh, something that they could really latch on to because it, it would also be seen as very anti-Israel speaking against the, their old religious system, the Old Testament system and what the temple represented so much of their religious identity and cultural identity, even political identity, would be wrapped up in the temple. So by them accusing Jesus of discrediting the temple and their religious system, it was very much, from their perspective, an attack on the nation. It's a serious charge that demands a response. And when it comes to this charge, verse 63, the very first sentence there, what is the response of Jesus to these charges? What's it say? All my answers come from this pocket. All right, pocket. What's he do? Nothing. Silence. He's silent. Jesus keeps silent. Now, how do you respond when you're unjustly accused of something? You protest. You get mad. You make your voice heard. Absolutely. Jesus is silent. The high priest stands up and says to Jesus, do you not answer? These, they're accusing you of some heavy charges here, some, some very heavy things. What do you say to these men who are testifying against you? And Jesus kept silent. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 is one of the top Old Testament passages on the atonement of the Messiah, pointing us towards Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 7 says this. He was oppressed and afflicted, 
yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. The silence of Jesus really triggers the high priest. The high priest demands an answer. He wants to hear from Jesus. All the teaching and actions of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, that he's done so many things and said so many things that would not be right for a mere human being. Jesus has said and done so many things that would only be right for the Messiah. That would be on, only be right for the Son of God. Think about Matthew 21, the triumphal entry we looked at. Jesus walks into Jerusalem, the beginning of the Passion Week, Matthew 21, just like Zechariah 9 says the Messiah would. People are crying out to Jesus, Hosanna, which means God save us. Jesus does not rebuke the people for worshiping him, for crying out to him. Jesus cleanses the temple by driving out all the corrupt religious practices and all those who are trading in the temple. And he, he acts and speaks as one who has authority over the temple. Again, Jesus is doing and saying things that would only be right if he is the Messiah. He's referred to himself with messianic titles. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is a direct reference back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Messiah. He calls himself the Son of God, making himself equal to God. Jesus is walking around and acting like he is the Messiah. The Son of God, God in the flesh, and the high priest wants an answer for all of this. So he says, I adjure you, you're walking around acting like the Messiah, acting like the Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And now he gets his confession directly from Jesus. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. You want to hear it plainly? I mean, I've been walking around telling everybody, doing all the right things. I've been living as the Messiah, acting as the Messiah, acting as the Son of God. You don't believe me. Now you want to hear it very clearly and directly. You have said it yourself. Think about the high priest at that point. Like, I mean, wow. He's actually, yes, he's claiming this. He is claiming to be the Messiah. And just so there's no confusion, just so like the high priest isn't wondering, like, okay, does this Jesus guy really know what he's saying here? Does he really know what he just admitted to? Jesus doubles down on this affirmation. Jesus um, is going to double down that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus says, let me show you how serious I am. 
This is way bigger than you realize. He says, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus takes the high priest right back to Daniel chapter 7 and says, yes, I'm very serious. I am the Christ, the Son of God. My reign is eternal. My reign is much bigger than any earthly kingdom. The, the cloud stuff, go look at Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14, because the high priest would be familiar with this, would be very familiar with this. This is one of the, another one of the great messianic passages of the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, you want to know how serious I am, high priest? Think back to Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14. This is what Daniel 7, 13 to 14 says, and this is what the whole cloud stuff is all about. Daniel 7 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying to the high priest, you remember that passage from Daniel chapter 7? That's me. I am the son of man. Jesus has now laid it all out and made it perfectly clear. And the high priest at this point has two different options. And this is where it gets really important for you and me because we actually have the same two options as the high priest here. Option number one, we can believe Jesus. We can believe Jesus that he is telling the truth. And what are the implications of that? If we believe Jesus at his word here, what are the implications of that? If Jesus is truly Lord, truly God, how does that impact your life? Does it not demand your everything? I mean, that is where the gospel really comes into play. That is where the gospel really uh, starts to meet up with our lives. That, hey, we are sinners before God, but God chose to make a path to redemption. And he did it through Jesus Christ. That from the beginning, when sin entered the world, God promised that he would send a redeemer. He would send somebody to make atonement for our sins so that through faith in him, we could have fellowship with him. And that he is the one and only possibility back to fellowship with God. He is the one and only option if we want to spend eternity with God. One option is we believe Jesus in what he says 
about who he is. The second option the high priest has, and the second option that we have as well, is to call Jesus a liar and a blasphemer and to reject him. To call him a blasphemer worthy of death. I mean, think about, if Jesus is not telling the truth, could you be more of a blasphemer than to claim to be God? Than to claim to be the Son of God? I mean, at this point in time, there's only two ways to go with Jesus, right? Like, either he is who he claims to be, which demands total allegiance, demands that we abandon everything else to follow him, because what could be greater than following God? Or Jesus is just absolutely crazy and a liar worthy of death. Those are the only two options that the high priest has to choose from. And it's really the only two options for us, right? I mean, like, as you sit here today, these claims about who Jesus Christ is, is presented before you, and you've got to choose. Is Jesus telling the truth? Or is he a liar worthy of condemnation? And if he is telling the truth, what are the implications for your life? Is there truly anything else that you could choose to live for? Does the Bible even offer us any sort of middle ground here? It really doesn't. It really doesn't. Either Jesus is who he claims to be, or you don't believe him and you say, no, Jesus, I don't believe you are who you claim to be. There's really no middle ground. We see the choice that the high priest makes, and that gets us to our final section here. The condemnation of Christ. Verses 65 to 68. We see the, high, the choice the high priest makes. He tears his robes and says, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? We see here just mocking and condemnation from those who reject the claims of Jesus Christ. Again, if Jesus was just a mere man then yes, he is very much in the wrong, right? It very much is blasphemy for a human, a mere human, to claim to be God. But while Jesus is 100% man, he is also 100% God, which is why it is right for him to claim this place of authority. But the high priest, he tears his robes. Tearing your robe, that would be a sign of mourning, but it's also a sign of disassociating, distancing himself from Jesus, just making it really clear that, hey, 
I have nothing to do with being in, an agree in agreement with these claims that Jesus has made. Verse 66 says, he asked the people around, what do you think? And they said, he deserves death. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy 18.20, Deuteronomy 18.20 does say that the punishment for a false prophet is death, is death. So if Jesus was a false prophet, then that would be what he deserves. And it leads to the further taunting and condemnation. They spit in his face and beat him with their fists and slap him and say, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? When we think about applying this, question number one, it's who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question you can ever answer. You will ever answer. Who do you say Jesus is? It really determines the trajectory of not just your life on this earth. It absolutely changes your life on this earth. Your trajectory in this life totally changes. But it changes your trajectory for eternity. Because the reality is that for eternity we will all live either in internal fellowship with our Creator or in eternal condemnation and damnation in hell. There's only two options, only two places, and they correspond directly to who do you say Jesus Christ is? And I want you to think about that and think about it all the time recognize, I think we can all be honest and recognize that we sin, right? Every single one of us, every single day, multiple times a day. But God offers us salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ when we believe the claim of the claims that Jesus Christ made for himself as the Messiah the Son of God, who came to die and pay the penalty for our sins. That should be the number one question that preoccupies your mind every single day. Who is Jesus Christ? Second, when you come to that place of recognizing who Jesus Christ is, and then you are a Christian, you are a believer, you are a follower of Christ, do you rejoice in what Jesus Christ did for you? As we work through these chapters in Matthew 26, which are really tough, tough chapters and difficult to read, do you rejoice in the fact that God loved you so much that he went through this to bring you back to him, to bring you into fellowship with him? That should be a cause for rejoicing in our lives every single day once we come to a place of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. We should rejoice in that. It should change everything about our lives. So third, do you live for him? Recognizing what Jesus has done, who he is, and the life that we have in him, do you rejoice in him, and do you live for him? It really changes the entire complexion of how you see life. 
It changes the purpose and the meaning behind everything you do because now you recognize, hey, Jesus wasn't just some good teacher. He wasn't just some guy, but he is my Lord. He is God in the flesh. He is the rightful authority over every aspect of my life. And so every aspect of my life should now be lived in service to him. My relationships, my friends, my parents, my relationships with them, how I work, how I work at school and sports, every aspect now takes on a new meaning of how do I live for my Savior who loved me so much that he came to suffer and die so that I could be forgiven and have life in him. Let's pray. Lord, we do just thank you that you love us so much and you demonstrate your love for us and that you show us plainly and clearly who you claim to be. And I just pray that, Spirit, you would give us faith in the truth of who Jesus Christ is and that that truth would change every aspect of our lives, that we would live faithfully for you, love you, and rejoice in you every single day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.